Practical wisdom from the first leader of the Christian Church in Jerusalem. Join me, Pastor Hook, as we study James and how to put our faith into action. We are in James this morning. We are continuing in James chapter 2. And if you'll remember, at the last episode, we talked about James chapter 2, verses 1 through 4, that talked about favoritism and how the kingdom of God doesn't show favoritism, that all people are equal in the kingdom. In the world, we classify, we stratify, we judge, we prejudge, we place people in containers and categories and assume, make a lot of assumptions about them based upon the containers and categories that we put them in. That is part of the human condition. It's part of the human sinful condition. But in the kingdom, it is more... The, the fancy word is egalitarian. We're all equal in the kingdom. There is no one higher or lower than the kingdom. There were two disciples. The mother tried to get that Jesus to say, hey, will you put my two boys uh, on the kingdom first? Maybe one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus said, no. First of all, it's not for me to judge that. But in second of all, in the kingdom, there is no left and right. We're all children of God. That is an amazing when you think about it, that's a pretty amazing thing because the human condition always forces divisions. That's just the way we, we think and it's the way we process. But in the kingdom, we're all the same. and We all have the love of Jesus at the same level. He loves us all equally. And that is a wonderful thing because that means that we're not, we're not trying to get ahead of anybody or... or, or whatever in the kingdom we're all equal in the kingdom which makes the kingdom a pretty amazing and wonderful place it really does and a lot of the attempts here on earth to try to make equality and egalitarian decisions and policies and all that i think are being done because we come from a christian background because in other societies where there's not christianity is the main founding philosophy or DNA within that culture, they have no desire to have egalitarianism. In many, many, many cultures, they stratify, and that's the way you are, and you don't move out of your stratification, and, um, and that is not very Christian. But the human condition always wants to do this. It always wants to do this. So in James chapter 2, we're going to continue on verse 5, where we follow on, where James follows on from this discussion about not showing favoritism, and he takes it kind of in a different direction. So let's just look at it. James, hmm, man, all right, this is James chapter 2, verses 5 through 7. Listen, my dear brothers and sisters. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the eyes of the world to be rich in faith and to inherit the kingdom he promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor. Is it not the rich who are exploiting you? Are they not the ones who are dragging you into court? Are they not the ones who are blaspheming the noble name of him to whom you belong? So, James takes this argument even one step further. He says, listen, those who are poor in the eyes of the world, are they not rich in faith? Now, this is awesome because 
we as humans assume that if you're rich in one area, you're rich in all areas. Or that if you're poor in an area, you're poor in all areas. And God says no. You can be poor in the world, but you can be rich in faith. Now notice what he's not saying here. He's not saying that if you are rich in the world, you are poor in faith. He does not say that at all. But what he does say is that you can be poor in the world and be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom promised all of us. And I love this idea of kingdom, which is very much what Jesus came on this earth to talk about. He said, all the rulers of this earth have their own rules and regulations, and you have to live in the earth under the earth's rules. But in the kingdom, you live under my rules. And my rules are that I'm the king and we're all the same. And you can be poor in the world and yet still be rich in faith and inherit the kingdom. It's as clear as day. So God does not look at how much monetary resources you have. He only looks at the heart. And once you're in the kingdom, he gives you all rights and privileges. And it makes sense because once you're in the kingdom, you have the power of the Holy Spirit. You have the blessing of God on your life. You have honor. You have glory. You have power. You have you have. Uh, you have redemption. All of these things come from being in the kingdom. And they're much more powerful and wonderful than anything the world has to offer. So what does it matter what the world has to offer? If you're in the kingdom, you have everything. But if you don't have the kingdom, it kind of in a way you don't really have anything. Even though you might have all the things that the world values, you don't have it because you don't have the things of the kingdom. So the kingdom is very, very egalitarian. And in the kingdom, God judges everybody based upon the heart. Now, what's interesting is that we also have a tendency to assume that if you're poor, you're dumb. Uh, if you're poor, you have no uh, value. You're a drain. And that is simply not true. Because if you are a child of the king, yeah, you might be poor. But you have value. And once you realize you have value in the kingdom, that is a transformative thing. Because the church also, and what I mean by the church is the, the congregations, the church of God on this earth called together to do things. We should not judge people based upon their wealth either. We should base our judgment on people as to what gifting God has given them, how much time, talent, and treasure, and, and help channel that time, talent, and treasure to be a worker in the kingdom. You might be mopping floors in the world, and in the kingdom, you might, at a church, you might be leading an organization or a group or, or a committee or, or something like that. The church really does allow, and it's good that we do, of people of all sorts of backgrounds and experiences in the world to come in and have all sorts of leadership positions in the church. And this is a good thing because the world may not give you an opportunity for leadership. The world basically, today, the world says you can't be a leader unless you are well-educated, uh, perhaps come from a certain background, and all those things that the world deems necessary to, to lead 
an organization or something in the world. But in the church, it doesn't matter. In the church, you can be uh, from any background, from any education, from any situation, and God can continue to use you. And we, as a body of Christ, can continue to help you develop those giftings to further your use of those in the kingdom. And yeah, sometimes those giftings that are cultivated in the church might help you in the world to do something uh, different or to to uh, have different positions in the world, I guess. It's maybe a bad way to say that, uh, but or a, a, a way to say that. Because we are, not, we are not judged in the kingdom by the world's standards. We're judged in the kingdom by the world's kingdom. But in James, as he's talking about this, he says, Has, is it not the people who are poor that are rich in faith? But we dishonor the poor. The rich are exploiting the poor. They're the ones dragging them into court and the ones blaspheming, blaspheming the normal name of to him you belong. Now, this is an interesting thing about being wealthy in some situations in some places around the world. As I mentioned yesterday, sometimes, or almost in every situation, a society, uh, the wealth, for whatever reason, wealth attracts wealth. And so therefore, as a society gets older, after a revolution or a dysfunction or a disruption to that society, once there's stability in that, in that society, you will find that wealth attracts wealth. And so money, resources, power, all those things tend to um, float to the top, if you will, and the wealthy become even more wealthy. And one of the things in bad societies, very, very, very bad societies, one of the things that happens is that the wealth use their power, the top echelon of society use their power and influence and wealth to exploit the poor. They don't even give a chance to the poor. They exploit the poor so that they can become more wealthy and have more power. And it's really kind of a horrible, hideous thing, but it's happened throughout all of history and all kinds of governments. And it even happens in those types of societies that have Christianity as their foundational DNA. You will still find in those societies sometimes the wealthy exploiting the, the poor, and it should not happen. Now, it's a very big, complicated thing. And that doesn't necessarily mean that, uh, that, that all wealthy people are exploiting the poor because not all wealthy people are exploiting the poor and not all wealthy people are bad. And not all, all those people who are in the upper echelon with power, wealth, fame in society are bad people. Many, many of them are very, very, very good, good people and many, many, many of them are followers of Jesus Christ, and, and this is all good. The prohibition here is that wealthy people should not exploit the poor just so that they can be wealthier and have more power and more influence. They should be fair. And here in the United States, we do have a legal system where we try very, very, very hard not to exploit the poor. And we have lots and checks and balances and lots of programs available to us to allow 
or to make sure that the poor are represented in society. And that is all a good thing. So that is a good mark of a good Christian society is, is to be able to allow people to do that. I know that I've heard that if you are charged with a crime that our society will grant to you somebody to help defend you in court against that crime because we know that poor people don't necessarily have those resources. One of the problems in that is that if a court system gets overwhelmed, if there are so many crimes that the court systems can't keep up with it, then these people who are defending in court, even though they may be very, very well-intentioned, can become overwhelmed. And in a way, sometimes they might have preconceived notions. Like if you are a public defender and you are defending against a certain type of crime, you might see those crimes over and over and over and over again to the point where you almost lose the desire to really fight for each individual person because you know that they're probably guilty and this is probably what's going to happen to them. And 90% of the time or 80% of the time, it's the exact same. And so you don't, you lose sight of the fact that you might see in that person a difference that they might actually be innocent or that this case has a lot of extenuating circumstances that should be brought to the court and considered by the court. But unfortunately, as a society becomes more and more, um, as a society has more and more crime, I guess you could say, it's harder for that. And I'm not saying that poor people equals crime. I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that the equal justice system that we have, as people become more and more criminal, I guess you could say, it's harder for a society to have an equal justice system in a society. That's what I'm trying to say. Because not all poor people are not the source of crime at all. I mean, there, there are very, very many, many, many good people who just happen to not have a lot of wealth. Another thing that we've done in our society is to try to help people at the lower rung of society get onto the first rung. Now, this is an interesting thought experiment, but one of the problems that comes out of societies is that if you are really, really poor, if you come from a poor family, you don't have a lot of resources, it is hard has historically in the world been very, 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 very hard to get to the first rung. Like the amount of energy it takes to get one step forward when you're very, very poor is incredible. Then the amount of energy to take the second step is less, then the third step is less, and the fifth step, sixth step. Like all of those, but it's that first step. It's like the world... When you are poor and have no resources, it is very, 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 very hard to break out of that and to get any traction whatsoever. And it's just, it's just natural. It's part of the sinful condition. So one of the things that we do here in the United States is we have placed a large emphasis on trying to help people that are from poor backgrounds or don't have a lot of resources to at least, at least get that first rung. And so we have, uh, we have 
all sorts of programs and governmental systems, even the education system is is designed to help people get that get to that first rung. It is because you imagine how hard it would be if you're in a society where where people can read and write and think and do all those not think, but read and write, have some of the skill sets that are necessary to move forward in life and you can't read, you can't write. Imagine how much of a hint a handicap that is for you. And so one of the things that we've tried to do in the United States is to get everybody at least to the first rung. I'm not sure we've ever done that very well. The, the first um, kind of attempt at that was probably in Boston. I think the first, the first major attempt to at that was by Horace Mann and the Boston public school system where he promised that if we would just educate everybody, give everybody an education, and I think that would be like a, a K through eight education, you know, an eighth grade education. If we just give everybody an eighth grade, we could eliminate all crime, all poverty, all dissension, all all the problems of society. If we would just give everybody an eighth grade education, and I think that was a great grand promise. But the problem is, is that education isn't the only barrier to things in this life, and there th- that. Um, that doesn't overcome the fact that we are all still humans trapped in a world of the human condition, which has original sin and brokenness. And you can't fix all of that. It's impossible. But the church, man, this is what I love about the church. The church can look at anybody from any situation, any background, any education, any training, any nationality. The church can treat everybody with equal dignity and love people one-on-one and create the environment by which anybody from any background can can be loved and know that they're part of the kingdom. And I just, that's what I love about the church. And the world, the world, no matter how hard it tries, is never, ever going to be able to overcome that. I just don't think it's possible. We live in a human condition called brokenness and sin, and so therefore it's not going to happen. So, um, let's see. Uh, are they not the ones dragging you into court? Yes. It is, it is just ironic that the poor assent to the rich and then the rich drag them into court. And this can happen. If you are wealthy, you can, you can buy the court system. You can probably not so much here in the United States, I hope, <coughs> but in other parts around the world. If you are wealthy, you control the court system. I mean, that's how, this is how monarchies happen. Like every monarchy around the world where where there's a ruler that's called a monarch, which is I am the person in charge. If you look at how they became in charge and how they keep their power when they're in charge, it isn't necessarily because they were kind to the poor. They used their power and influence and wealth to continue to gain power, influence, and wealth to the point where they had almost all the power, influence, and wealth, and nobody can touch them. And at that point, you become the king. You become the monarch. You become the ruler. Another word for monarch in some areas of the world is dictator or supreme ruler or supreme leader uh, wherever there's just one person in charge, that person is basically in that position because they have controlled 
the system for such a long time that they now control a large portion of the system. So, and Israel found this out too. I mean, God tried to tell Israel, don't have kings. Because kings, while you think you may want a king, because every other culture around you has a king, may come with a price. And the price of a kingship is that everybody has to give allegiance to the king. The king makes all the decisions, whether or not they're a good king or a bad king. And the, and you have this top-down structure, which is just not necessarily great for society. It worked for a few kings, but it didn't work for many, many, many other kings. Um, so there you have it. That is um, James 2, 5 through 7. I, let's just go on and finish this part. Uh, this is verse 8. If you really keep the royal law found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing right. But if you have shown favoritism, you sin and are convicted by the law as lawbreakers. For whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at just one point is guilty of breaking all of it. For he who said, you shall not commit adultery, also said, you shall not murder. If you do not commit adultery, but do commit murder, you become a lawbreaker. Speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom, because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. So the James ties this whole idea about loving everybody equally, this egalitarian principle that exists in the kingdom, he ties it back into love your neighbor as yourself. Like your neighbor is the one who needs to be loved. And if the church truly loves the neighbor as ourself, then how could we possibly have levels of, of good or bad or rich or powerful or, or whatever in the kingdom? Because in the kingdom, it's all about giving away power and giving away honor and glory and wealth and all those sort of things. And the story that so motivates me about this is the story about the Good Samaritan, about how this one person, we're not told about who they are, what their situation was. All that we're told about is that they were weak and helpless. And it was the wealthy, powerful class in society that walked on by. And it was just simply a guy following the kingdom rules to love your neighbor that picked him up, put him on his horse, and took him to the nearest inn and took care of him. And that is such a great story and an image of what the church is, is that we look around for people who are broken, and we pick them up, and we dust them off, and we tell them Jesus loves you. Love your neighbors yourself. And we should not look at somebody on the side of the road and judge them by who they are and say, I'm not going to help you because you don't look like me or you don't act like me or you're not influential. No, we show love to all people. But when you show favoritism, you're not. We're sinning and we're convicted. And whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles at one point is guilty of breaking all of it. This is kind of where this concept comes from in Scripture, that nobody can keep the law perfectly. There's several different places um, if you say you have no sin, you deceive yourself and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, God, who is faithful and just, will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, from 1 John. This is, um, this is a theme in Scripture, but this is where it really talks about 
If you are just guilty in one point of the law, you're guilty of the whole entire law. It's all there. You're completely guilty of it. Uh, it says you should not commit adultery and you not murder. But if you, if you do not commit adultery but do commit murder, you've broken the whole entire law. And we break the law by just simply breaking the law. We do that. All right. So um, speak and act as those who are going to be judged by the law that gives freedom. He talks about this again, the law that gives freedom. Because judgment without mercy will be shown to anyone who has not been merciful. Mercy triumphs over judgment. And that is so true. That is the gospel. That God's mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is always more powerful than judgment. That is so counterintuitive. We think judgment is the most powerful thing on the earth, right? Law, order, judgment, God's law, all these things are the most powerful thing. No, they're not. The law does not save. The law points out transgressions, wrongdoings, brokenness, sin. It is God's mercy and his love and his grace that has more power. And nothing can overcome that power. And that was what Jesus taught. That's the whole message of Jesus, is that grace is just the most powerful force in humankind. So I think we'll leave it there. Um, Let's close in prayer. Gracious God, for the blessings of this day, we thank you for this lesson today. We thank you. Help us to be merciful and loving to all we meet. In your name we pray. Amen.